Hello everyone, I'm Deborah Augustine, New Narrative's Membership Engagement Manager. Earlier this year, New Narrative published a piece about Wong Kweng Hui, one of the many stateless people in the Malaysian state of Sabah, and his decade-long legal battle to gain citizenship in Malaysia. In October 2019, the Kuala Lumpur High Court finally granted Wong citizenship. But this breakthrough only lasted for three weeks. The Malaysian government applied for a stay of execution on the order to grant Wong citizenship. Last month was the two-year anniversary of what could have marked the end of his ongoing struggle. On this week's episode of Southeast Asia Dispatches, we look at what has happened since. We hear from Wong himself, along with his lawyer, Haijan Omar, and Dr. Vila Shini Somia, Executive Committee Member of the Sabah Human Rights Centre. We discuss Wong's efforts to break the generational cycle of statelessness affecting him and nearly a million other people who live in Sabah. If you enjoy what we're doing, please support our work by becoming a member of New Narrative at newnarrative.com slash join. Memberships start at just $52 US a year. That's just $1 a week. Or you can donate at newnarrative.com slash donate. And now, here's the interview. Hello, thank you for joining me on the show today. How's everyone doing? Yeah, doing great. It's splendid today, having uh, us uh, in the interview. Very, very excited. Thanks for having us. Yeah, I'm excited to talk about this today. So, Haijan, in May, we published a story that described the bureaucratic hurdles that Wong had to jump to through to claim Malaysian citizenship, which was granted to him in 2019, and then taken away three weeks later because of the precedent it would set for other stateless people. Could you explain this incident? Well, uh, of course, uh, when we filed the application, uh, then it got heard before a high court charge in Kuala Lumpur. Of course, uh, at the sanction of, uh, of the filing of the application, uh, we thought to ourselves that it's an uphill uh, battle for us. It never occurred to us that, uh, that the high court charge would grant the prayers that we wanted, that is a citizenship be granted to Wong. Uh, but then uh, when the high court judge heard our application, the high court judge narrowed it down to the fact that uh, his uh, mother is untraceable. Therefore, there's no way they can even begin to uh, apply for a citizenship of any other countries. Uh, therefore, the judge made a finding that he is rendered stateless. Because of that, the court, the high court, uh, uh, granted the citizenship to him uh, because that's the intention of the federal constitution, being the supreme law of this country. The moment, of course, uh, we got uh, the order granting the citizenship, uh, we had to send the order uh, to the government so that the government could comply with the order of the high court. They did not, the government did not want to comply because they did not want to comply. Therefore, they had to put in a state of execution, which they did three weeks after. And the High Court judge had to grant it because it's a matter of public interest for a higher court to decide on it. That's why uh, uh, the matter is now before the Court of Appeal and uh, it's still uncertain whether or not the court of appeal will be agreeable to our submission. Can you give us an update about what has happened since in Wong's case? So, uh, okay, uh, so basically, uh, the moment they file an appeal, which is a precondition to the application for stay, uh, the court had to compile 
all the records for the purpose of appeal in the Court of Appeal. Uh, the, the hearing in the Court of Appeal was postponed uh, a couple of times due to the pandemic. Uh, only until recently, we managed to get it heard uh, by a panel of three in the Court of Appeal, uh, which I think uh, they gave us a really good hearing. The panel in the Court of Appeal, they, they asked the right questions. I think, I think we got a good hearing and uh, let's hope for the best. And do you have a time frame on, on, on when the case might be decided? in the Court of Appeal? They, they have given us a date. The date uh, for the decision has been fixed on the 10th of uh, November, uh, 2021. Yes, so that's going to be through Zoom. And that will be the final decision? Uh, not necessarily, because, uh, of course, in uh, the system in, this, uh, in Malaysia is that uh, this is a civil appeal. Uh, so you, the matter was originated in the High Court by way of uh, judicial review, uh, we won in the High Court. Uh, so this their appeal in the Court of Appeal, depending on what the decision is going to be on 10 or 11, 2021, uh, parties still have a right of appeal to, a, to an apex court, which is a federal court. Uh, but we, either one, whoever that's losing, in the Court of Appeal has to pass a, a hurdle, which is uh, they have to first obtain a leave to appeal to federal court before they can get the appeal proper heard in the federal court. Right. So, yes, wishing you all the best with that um, and then hoping that it continues to be uh, a good, smooth sailing process. So, you know, this is about statelessness and the factors that contribute to statelessness are very different in West Malaysia and East Malaysia, especially in Sabah, due to its geographical location and nature of its borders. Why is this so? Um, Dr. Vilashini, you have done extensive research on statelessness in Sabah. Can you give us some insights about the situation on the ground? Yeah, thanks for that, Deborah. Um, I think you captured it really well. Maybe a lot of people are unaware of this, but when we say the word stateless or undocumentedness or you know whatever it is that pertains to a person not having um, legal documents right for themselves, uh, the conditions that lead to that over in uh, the peninsula of Malaysia versus what's happening in Sabah differs. It's certainly because number one of um, historical borders that Sabah shares with say the Philippines and Indonesia and you know modern day Brunei. Um, but, you know, Brunei isn't involved in this particular conversation versus uh, the sort of, I think, lack of political will or political will uh, of issues that are happening um, this side on the peninsula as well. So when we do talk about statelessness uh, in the peninsula, we're looking at, I think, more prominent cases that's come to the fore, uh, fore involves uh, plenty of uh, members of uh, the uh, Indian community uh, who are by and large sort of neglected by the state in ways that they can achieve some sort of documentation. And then there are also cases in which, you know, Malaysian, uh, Malaysians may have had a child with a non-Malaysian here and, you know, the situations vary, but not too much so in the sense that, you know, these conditions don't exist in Sabah. Um, where it's it's different in Sabah, particularly, number one, is that, as I've mentioned, there are these historical borders 
or well, should I say modern day borders, but historical relationships between um, southern Philippines, particularly and Sabah, because they were seen as one cohesive space. This would include people traveling all the way from, say, Sulawesi as well, yeah, coming in from Kalimantan. So historically, these places were seen as uh, one united um, geography, so to speak. So when you have um, the colonial masters leaving this, this parts of the world and surrendering this um, uh, new nation states to decide their borders, people who are caught in the borderland are often forced to decide uh, a side that they have to choose, right, between two or maybe three nations. This can be very difficult if you come from that part of the world. This can be incredibly difficult if your family uh, lives on the border of Kalimantan and Malaysia, for example. Uh, but these decisions are forced because then this new idea of, um, you know, state documents, uh, your identity card, your birth certificate comes into play, right? It, it, it's an issue of privileges, it's an issue of rights. Uh, other issues that sort of uh, causes statelessness in Sabah varies as well. You know, there's a fantastic article that was written sometime about 10, 15 years ago uh, by Aziza Kasim and co, um, who listed down something like about 10 conditions as to what leads a person to become what they call an irregular migrant. Now, of course, this term has been problematized. Right, because nobody likes the word irregularity. It's just like uh, human rights ex activists fighting against the term uh, illegal migrant, for example, who is illegal in this world. But the, the, the real meaning behind being an irregular migrant certainly means that there is an irregularity of your status. And this could mean so many things. You could have um, two people who are not from Sabah, who are not uh, Malaysians living in Sabah, who come to Sabah to work. Um, say on a work visa and they get together and they have children and that marriage is not recognized, boom, you've, you now have stateless children. You have those that have been given some sort of temporary refugee card. The IMM 13 is a very good example. And they come and they receive that, but that is a renewable document. And let's say one year you can't renew 10 people in the house, uh, each costing anywhere between 80 to 100 ringgit. And boom, you become undocumented, right? Um, you come in illegally, illicitly into the state. You are uh, uh, an illegal migrant that puts you in a state of irregularity. And it is exacerbated because you find love and then you have a family. Now the entire family is undocumented. These conditions have been sort of, well, you know, followed closely, I think, by activists, by members of the state, uh, by the federal government for many years. And there has been an accusation that um, the community has been used for political purposes, political gains. Now, of course, these are alleged, but it's an ongoing discussion till today. But you can imagine if this was an issue in 1970, by 2021, these numbers, these population are not static. They grow and they grow in ways that are so much larger because they are they start to become what we call a neglected community and, and they become part of society. So we don't give them documentation. We don't recognize that they have the rights and privileges that all Malaysians or anybody with a citizenship should have, you know, healthcare, education, right to a job, um, so on and so forth. And so they grow in numbers, but they certainly don't grow and they don't uh, assist the state by growing in resources, human, 
goods otherwise, right? So they start to also eat into state resources. This, um, this of course, adds up to issues of, um, you know, adding to layers of uh, lack of development, extreme poverty, individuals being taken advantage of, smuggling, trafficking. So in that sense, you know, I'm, I'm sort of capturing in 10 minutes an incredibly complex and complicated situation of statelessness, right? Before I sort of hand it off to maybe uh, somebody else to speak on this, is that I think the term statelessness and undocumentedness today becomes incredibly complicated because of the way we live life through the through digital means. A long time ago, what it meant to be stateless or undocumented is to be void of any form of documentation. But today, uh, with COVID-19, people have to have some sort of uh, access to any form of documentation for you to do contact tracing and things like that. So the irony is that undocumented and stateless people in the state of Sabah continue to be seen that way because they don't have access to, you know, rights as a citizen, but they are, um, give, um, you know, they are under massive scrutiny. They are given other forms of documentation to monitor them, to decide what needs to be done with them, through them, about them, but really not in a way where they have agency. And I think this is the larger issue that scholars and experts and, you know, um, people like uh, Haijan, who are lawyers working on cases like this, even officials of the state have to debate. They have to ask these questions because when there is a lack of political will to deal with irregular migrants in Sabah that way, you have a growing population and you have no solution. And it doesn't help that political narratives have carved a situation where it is indigenous people or natives of Sabah versus irregular migrants. When the reality is, it's not that. We're here talking today because we have many conditions in which locals actually have families with people who are irregular migrants. They have, you know, solid family foundations. And it, it's certainly a massive disconnect between what we read in the media or, you know, white papers or policy papers written about this versus lived reality of community members that we see every day. Right. Yes. And, and you know, you brought up, you know, that, that uh, a human rights activist don't like to use the word illegal and and you know at new narrative yeah we we definitely don't use that word um in in referring to anyone who is undocumented um and and as you said it's it's a very complex situation but thank you for giving us that that overview of of what's specifically leading to statelessness in Sabah and I think certainly the border situation is is unique to that part of Malaysia um and so maybe this this is a question uh, that is open to everyone. There's a lot of advocacy currently surrounding stateless children, but very little spotlight on stateless adults. Why do you think this this is happening? I suppose I can only speak from a place uh, of an observer and a scholar of the space. Um, you will find that majority of the um, uh, the civil society spaces and the NGO spaces really work very hard, I think, to fight for the rights of children generally, because on one level, it's an easier fight, right? There is a universal appeal to fighting for children, right? Because it can it can appeal to, to people who are, say, you know, fighting against child marriages, smuggling of children, right? The sexual abuse of children, 
the education of children, healthcare for children. This is a very huge blanket area. Uh, when we say that we fight for stateless or undocumented kids, and you know, I think that sort of universal appeal speaks to the humanity of maybe even the hardest reaches of the Malaysian government. It would say, all of you have children, right? All of us were children. You know the vulnerabilities of children. But there's, um, there's, I think there's a, a sort of a difficulty in transitioning beyond that narrative because um, children are children up to a certain age until they become adults, right? Particularly, I think, in the irregular migrant community. This can be difficult when you, number one, don't have birth certificates. In, in Wong's case, there is a birth certificate. We've identified the date and time in which he's born. As uh, sad as this next sentence I'm going to say is, that's considered lucky. There's, I mean, there's nothing lucky about his scenario at all. It's unfortunate. But there are also many cases in which children do not have a birth certificate. So sometimes when it is they reach age 18 or 21, is anybody's guess, right? In a world of survival, this can be very difficult uh, because you then don't know. What adds to this is that because majority of the children might not be going to school, or even if they did have access to alternative learning centers, they might not be able to go the whole way, right? They might end um, school at age 12 or 15, what have you. So the moment you don't have access to any form of edu um, educational curriculum or activities, uh, what does a poor family that also happens to be a migrant, uh, what, what do you think they do? They probably say, please go and get a job because we need those resources. We need money to come in. So when you have uh, a late teen going out to work, they're sort of automatically treated as adults. And I say late teen, but in some cases, you might even have a 10-year-old, 11-year-old going to work in a restaurant, right? Cleaning plates and whatnot. So, you know, the, the way society treats them then would be as if, if you're bringing in money. And this is, um, of course, a socioeconomic conversation is that you are then old enough to be treated as an adult. So in situations where we cannot protect them because they have no documents and that, you know, there are these daily everyday needs that uh, the individual family unit requires from members of the family, regardless of their, their age or their gender even, is that the, the sort of the gray area in which you enter adulthood starts to become very difficult. It's, it also becomes difficult then because if there happens to be a, a sting operation, if there's an immigration raid, then the, their job is to get any irregular migrant ad, adult. And how do you define adult then? Adult also translates to being a state security issue. You are a threat to the state. So I think, you know, playing or, or playing or making use of the, the child, the stateless child narrative is convenient. Of course, it's easier. Uh, I think there is a hope also that if you can document um, undocumented or stateless children, it, um, what do you call, you help them avoid this very difficult terrain of stateless adulthood. But the truth is, it's been an uphill battle, I think, for many people fighting in that space. And so when you have somebody who've entered the adult space, suddenly you are a threat for being a threat. And um, I think that makes it, you know, very difficult to navigate through. I don't in any way 
think that, uh, you know, it's an easy job for Jan and Wong because it's a tough, it's certainly a tough position to argue for. Yeah, I can see how it's definitely more appealing to civil society or, or to the general public to, to fight for um, stateless children. And I think that's an interesting point about how you transition from into becoming a security threat as you become older. Um, and, but that brings me to this, which is we now have third and fourth generations of stateless people as you know, stateless adults go on to live their lives and have children. Does the Malaysian government intend to allow statelessness to continue being passed down indefinitely? Well, of course, uh, it's a matter of, uh, you know, rhetorics. Uh, I think they say that, you know, they have put in place, uh, you know, certain uh, SOPs, new SOPs uh, that allows for uh, citizenship application to be processed uh, uh, expeditiously. But that remains a rhetoric because what we can see now is that, uh, you know, they put all this in place, but yet a lot of people, a lot of parents of these children are still waiting and waiting. It's all waiting game to them until the end. And uh, the, the fate is really uncertain because it's not really about law. Uh, the law is there. We have a federal constitution which says that, you know, a citizenship can be obtained through uh, four uh, uh, ways. Uh, that means, uh, you know, by way of registration, by way of uh, operation of law, by way of uh, naturalization, and by way of annexation of a, a territory. Uh, but then that's, that's, that's quite limited. The, the wording of the federal constitution is very broad, yet because it's a matter of uh, public policy of the government, most courts, uh, they're a bit uh, reluctant to interpret the law. I think this, this comes back to, uh, of course, uh, the, the history of Malaysia, uh, where right after judicial crisis in 1998, uh, the courts uh, are very reluctant to interpret the law liberally. So that's why, uh, you know, these parents of stateless children, these stateless children, stateless adults, they are limbo. Because it's, to them, it's all about making applications with governments and it's about waiting and waiting for years and years and years just to find out in the end, the application will be rejected. So I think it's a, like uh, Dr. Villa has rightly pointed out, it all boils down to the political will of uh, the, the government of the day to put uh, some sort of reform to this because it's a, it's a, it's a life issues. It's a, it's a prolonged issues uh, for decades that they need to resolve this one way or the other because we have come to this, uh, you know, 20, what, 20, 21st century. It's 2021 now and um, yet nothing is happening, nothing is resolved. I want to add to what Haijan um, has just said so eloquently is that I'd like to give an example of this. So, you know, when the Pakatan Harapan government came um, into power, their uh, political ally, not a member of Pakatan Harapan, but their political ally was the local Sabah party Warisan at that time. And, you know, there was a huge conversation about finding ways to, I think, um, legalize people who were stateless, undocumented, and so on and so forth in Sabah. Now, for years and years, uh, one of the uh, biggest, uh, how do I say, 
a point of anxiety, I think, for Malaysian Sabahans, Sabahans with Malaysian identity, Sabahans who are indigenous, was that uh, migrants were coming, you know, they were going to take their jobs, they were going to destroy their state, they're basically going to infiltrate Sabah and sort of remove their agency from the overall uh, scheme of the state, right? Uh, and this has been played out for decades. This has been a really popular, very convenient and very powerful political narrative that has been used, right? Uh, and, and of course, it, it dates back to this alleged little case called Project IC from the 1980s, right? In which, and I use the word alleged, Allegedly, the previous Prime Minister, Mahathir Mohamad, had sort of engineered a citizenship system that allowed or, or that caused, uh, you know, a large number of people from the Philippines and Indonesia to get Malaysian identity cards so that they can sort of um, allow for a political invasion of parties like AMNO and Barisan National into the state of Sabah, right? And of course, some people accuse that the project I see on maybe the social engineering of the state, you know, to uh, it was a, an Islam versus Christian sort of narrative that was building or an indigenous versus identity sort of narrative brewing, but I digress, right? And this, this is, of course, a conversation for another time. And so I think because that boogeyman, that monster of a story still stays in the back of everybody's heads, I think when Warisan sort of suggested or took an, uh, an old uh, proposal in which they wanted to come up with something called Pass Sementara Sabah, the temporary Sabah Pass, to give to people um, like Wong, for example, anybody who is undocumented or stateless or you know has a, a lapsed uh, work visa, it was just received so badly. And one of the key issue is that finding ways to legalize them does not mean giving them citizenship. I understand that quite a number of civil society groups actually went out, went to public, went to social media to sort of make very clear that there were different differences in legalizing someone versus giving them citizenship. You could sort of give them PR, for example. But I think the fear that this was a ploy, a lie, was so great that members of politicians who were in power, statesmen, second-guessed themselves really badly because, you know, that sort of reaction would mean, um, you know, not being voted in in the next election, right? So I think this is where this whole issue with political will is a very, very big problem uh, that I think there is a fear also that pushing for the kind of reforms and policies in place to, to find general amnesty for, for this community would be met with an accusation that somebody has a hidden agenda to again return to the old practices of Project IC. And so this makes it very difficult. It's sort of like taking two steps forward and maybe five steps back, if not another two steps back. Thank you for that context. I think, yes, that's, that's really important, especially in the context of Sabah to know you know, what exactly is sort of holding back the politi the political will. Um, so maybe, you know, I'd like to turn to Wong now, um, you know, because you are the person who is affected by this larger political conversation, these policies. Wong, how have you been coping with the court's latest decision to deny you citizenship? Uh, yeah, at that time, I uh, past two years, I feel like angry and very upset because 
this is my right. And court is give it give the rights for me. And why they need an appeal for me is not need to appeal because that is what I should have. I need to have it. But the other point of view, what I saw is like, yeah, never mind, you can appeal. So the journey won't end up just like that. The journey is still long. So I accept the challenge. What happened is the win or lose is another story. At least we try it. What the, whatever the challenge is, we need to try. So if I pass the federal the court of appeal or maybe soon the federal high court, so the other statements behind behind me maybe they have a hope, I guess. Yeah, because my case is not just all about me. It's all about the other statements in Malaysia. Yeah, I think it's definitely, you know, every every case that is won, I think it, it helps other people. And, you know, I mean, you, you said this is a challenge, but has the pandemic made it harder for you to pursue citizenship? Not really make me harder. Like, it's just uh, take uh, for extra time, extra extra time to wait because the uh, Court of Appeal, they postpone a couple of, couple of time. And maybe, can you describe some of the challenges you face as a stateless person in Malaysia? Uh, yeah, like uh, Dr. Vila said, our uh, like uh, adult stateless, they had to face, uh, to get like a uh, medical healthcare, to open a bank account, to get a job. And a basic, a basic things also like want to travel to others, other state, like to buy a bus ticket or they need your IC. They need your ID and it's hard for me and other stateless as well. And now it's a, everybody use, a, everybody use a smartphone. You want to buy a SIM card, a very, very basic thing also. It's very difficult for us because they ask for the ID to register. And the worst, the worst part of the scenario is I always going to face the authorities. I'm going to face the police. And then police will ask for the or ID. And when I fail to show my ID, they will gonna bring me to the police station when they put me on the jail. And some of them ask for me um, money, like 500 ringgit, because I just fa- I failed to show my ID. Right. And, and has it been, um, you know, because we, we have had movement control orders right now which means there are more police around has that made your life more difficult it's different you know in peninsula and in sabah in peninsula i feel a bit safe because uh, when the police the police like ask for the id i tell i said i don't have an ic and then i explain everything i don't think they will understand like they just like don't want to make the things worse and then they just let me go but it's different in Sabah you know this in Sabah the police like they know they know the stateless is they know the undocumented is so they will take an advantage uh, you go to the night market to buy a vegetable or food that kind of stuff they will randomly ask your ID so when you fail to show your ID they will take an advantage that's a very interesting insight thanks for sharing that um Haijan how did you and Wong meet we met by chance. Uh, so happened that Wong is a, a friend of another friend. 
uh, in 2017, uh, Wong, um, in his desperation, he migrated to uh, Peninsula to follow up with his application for citizenship. Uh, and so happened that a friend of mine introduced me to him and I took, took up the challenge. I have not uh, single citizenship cases before uh, I met Wong. So Wong is the first case. But right after Wong, of course, uh, I've, done, I've done a couple as well. So Wong is actually a start. And what made you decide to take his case since you had never done a citizenship case before? My training and my practice uh, revolve more on uh, criminal and appeals and constitutional law. Of course, constitutional law more on the preventive detention and all that. Uh, but, uh, but of course, I, I took up the challenge because I think this is an issue that uh, we need to take up uh, legally. Because if you can't go by way of a uh, you know, political uh, route, uh, so of course, uh, you have to fight it legally. So I think, and being a lawyer, I think we have to, uh, you know, we have to persevere in fighting through legal means, uh, which I think at the end of the day, with perseverance and all that, we can, we can succeed. So, and I have seen that uh, in many cases that uh, with perseverance, regardless of what you think, you know, that the case is a, is a sure gone case, but with perseverance, with uh, faith, I think, you know, in the end, you can win it. So that's why I took up the challenge. Excellent. And, you know, I want to return to this wider situation of statelessness, you know, um, maybe Haijan or Dr. Villa, you can answer this. Malaysia is one of 25 countries that do not give mothers and fathers equal rights to pass citizenship to their children. And children can also lose the right to citizenship here for being illegitimate. So what has been the purpose behind these kinds of conditions historically? Okay, so basically, I think what happened is that I think, again, it all boils down to the political will of the government of the day, right? Regardless of what the system that we inherited from our colonial masters before, is, is the current government of the day needs to do something about it. As much as other people are disappointed with uh, PH government when they took over government, they blew it up. They blew the whole thing up, uh, you know, this, this, this opportunity, you know, uh, and uh, when, when they had the chance to do good about it so now that uh, you know in a, in a, in a, in, a, in one term we have the change of three governments in one terms yet this problem still persists it's the political will they 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 lack that they, it seems that they don't want to do it because it's just a matter of putting you know putting the the whole energy to it and and get it resolved um, for me, this whole issue about not giving citizenship um, to families through their mothers has a lot to do with power. It has a lot to do with power because there is a concern that diversity of a, a family, of a community will only happen through the woman, right? And that her decision is to, quote unquote, stray. So, um, uh, you know, putting on a gendered lens, I am concerned that, you know, uh, Jan has um, sort of alluded to this, is that these are some of the conditions uh, given to us by uh, our colonial masters when they were with us, right? And in leaving that, 
we have been sort of timestamped and there is a, a, a datedness when it comes to this law, to these practices that we maintain and we continue to uphold uh, these belief systems, these legal systems that have not evolved when the irony is our colonial masters went back to their colonial homes and evolved into something else entirely, right? If you put two and two together, um, they play by completely different legal rules. And so I think at the end of the day, there is this concern that they can't control what we call the variables. They can't control the conditions of the society because they feel that they cannot control women. So in a, in a sense, this is... Uh, this is a sort of chain to bind these anxieties, these fears of women marrying out, women having children outside. Uh, but, you know, women bear the children, right? <laughs> so I, I just, you know, I fail to see why it is that they're not given the same amount of rights that men are because, you know, child rearing in itself is um, really painful and very tough. Uh, but somehow or other, the glory of having children still returns to the position of the father. So, you know, I think it also it's also to sort of paint this this idea of the ideal man, the ideal father figure, the ideal man is able to give, you know, his DNA and also his privileges to the children that he see fit and women don't. Right. And I mean, you know, we are seeing greater advocacy for citizenship for mothers at this present moment. And in September, a group of Malaysian mothers won the right to pass their citizenship to their children born overseas. Would this ruling affect cases like Wong's in the future? The, the principle there is, uh, I think, is significantly different than uh, the facts and circumstances in Wong. Because that uh, relates to a Malaysian mother whose child was born outside of the Federation. Right. So there, the issue, uh, uh, the relevant issue there is about the, the rights of the mother uh, as opposed to the rights of the husband, of the father. Mm-hmm. Because if the father, regardless whether the child was born here or, or is born in, uh, outside the federation, uh, will still be a citizen of this country. And how do Malaysia's citizenship laws compare to other countries in this region? It's a bit difficult for me to... <laughs> maybe perhaps uh, Dr. Villa can... I, I don't know. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm not any more educated on the matter than Haijan is. But what I can tell you is that I do know that while we want to think that uh, Malaysia is a rarity in that sense, the um, complications around statelessness and um, parents, particularly mother being able to to transfer their their citizenship over to their children or their children essentially, you know, being offered uh, citizenship through Jusolai, am I right, or Jusanguin as well, um, is that um, there are actually complications in many parts of the world, including the developed nation, right? Uh, And that when we think about um, statelessness, we often sort of identify statelessness in, you know, the poorest or the most underdeveloped nations, but this is not true. A lot of um, incredibly developed nations out there, uh, first world countries also suffer from these things. Now, of course, this is a, a sort of a question of, I would guess, um, real world conditions versus um, laws and acts and policies in place that a country would hold. And oftentimes there's, there's a disconnect, right? There are massive disconnects, for example. Um, there are places around the world where 
that even though there are legal um, procedures and outlets to actually getting your citizenship, it's not always going to be easy because some of, there are conditions in which while there are channels open for stateless people to receive some sort of general amnesty, there continues to be legal gaps. And these legal gaps can form in the way of, you know, filling up one form and wanting to transition to another. And you would find that there would be um, sort of blockages or, you know, uh, there might be, there's, there's a temporal issue. There's a time frame to it. And if you don't make it, you know, therefore you are then disqualified from the practice altogether. Um, I can't speak any further on this because certainly it's not within the area of my expertise. Uh, but what I can say is that statelessness is not as rare as some people may want to believe. We talk about it as if we don't see it, uh, we don't know it, but I think that's a lot of willful ignorance. There are millions of people around the world who are either born or fall into statelessness at some point in their lives, right? And the fact that we have this lens, this, this, this view that this is a, a crippling condition, a, a socially, economically, politically crippling condition that we, that we look at this population of people, that we look at this community as you know, being subpar is very problematic. And there's this spiral of silence in which we want to believe that we shouldn't talk about it if we know someone who's stateless, if we have somebody who's stateless in our family, because it's so shameful. But the truth is, if you band together and you try to recognize a larger picture, like I said, millions, hundreds of millions of people in this world are stateless. I believe the United Nations um, has put out a sort of a goal that in the next decade, they want to eradicate all forms of statelessness altogether. Well, that's a, a beautiful dream. I, you know, I really, um, I'm on board with that in all ways and forms because I, I recognize that statelessness doesn't just impact stateless people, as we've heard from Wong. It impacts everybody around that. It impacts an entire society. And so I feel that uh, when we do recognize or we do pay attention to the ways in which statelessness is actually a huge spectrum of a socio-political problem, a socio-economic political problem, is that then we realize it's not as rare as it seems. It's not supposed to be stigmatized. It's supposed to be solved. And, you know, it's we're supposed to work together to find solutions. If there were any anxieties about it, especially worldwide in countries where, you know, the issue is that open debates recognizes people need to be given recognition. And I think this is essentially what it is. Right. So, yeah, maybe, Dr. Villa, I'll stay with you on, on this the next part of this. Um, are there any legal resources for stateless individuals to pursue their cases in Sabah? Well, yes. Um, and when I say yes, I do mean that they will have to, in a sense, do what Wong did with Haijan in a, in a way where they might, you know, the issue is the individual or the family needs to find ways to approach people who are working in the, in the legal industry, lawyers, um, paralegals, for example, uh, activists with a lot of legalese, to discuss their situations, right? So, for example, a group of people who are by and large lawyers are uh, my friends and um, uh, in the Sabah Human Rights Council. 
uh, Human Rights Center, the Sabah Human Rights Center. Sorry, my God, I got that wrong. Uh, and um, you know, they they've been working tirelessly, members who are lawyers, to sort of take up cases, uh, to find ways to if they, if they can't fight for documentation or citizenship, is to essentially communicate and engage with the law to see how it is that people can be given other forms of doc documentation to allow them to continue to live in Sabah without fear of arrest, without fear of deportation, right? Um, there is also uh, NGOs like, uh, say, for example, ANAC, that puts a lot of um, uh, emphasis on pushing for children who are stateless to go to schools. So their entire modus operandi is to make sure that the law, or at least the state, allows for uh, children and youth to be given some form of education to discuss and engage with them legally on that on the on that battlefront as well um, and then there are also groups like um, uh, women's groups for example fighting very hard to ensure that women who are pregnant with stateless children or stateless women themselves who are pregnant or you know who um, need help with family planning uh, who have uh, issues with domestic violences and whatnot are able to find uh, respite through police, um, you know, women crisis centers and things like that, where they can sort of uh, help with them uh, on the uh, women platform. So um, when it comes to these sort of things, engaging directly with the law, of course, while there are these avenues, all of which that I know are civil society groups, NGOs, but that's not so much the issue. While, of course, there's a huge encouragement to get, how do I say, to also encourage young people to come forward, Sabahans, for example, to, to speak about their utter disgust at the kind of xenophobia that can exist. The other bigger problem is to actually convince members of the stateless community to actually come forward to say, I have a problem, I need help. Because, you know, this is the elephant in the room. We talk about ways in which we can help this community, right? We talk about ways we can repair, you know, community engagement between both the indigenous and uh, irregular migrant community. What we're not talking about is years and years of trauma, years of years of utter fear, years of um, associating somebody with education and uh, citizenship and position in society with danger. Um, you know, uh, there is a training in which we recognize what a threat, what an outsider is, but people who come from that community <laughs> look at the other side of the fence and see a threat there as well. So when you say, let's open up schools to children who were born to one Malaysian parent, right? And that in itself doesn't engage with the entire community, but it's a start, they will see a situation where, um, you know, the reaction to it is not as positive because children are frightened. They think it's a trap. They're going to go to school with mom and dad and there's going to be a police officer waiting to, to arrest them, right? You know, and while this may be fantastical Im uh, imaginations, uh, this is rooted in a kind of real trauma. So I think despite the fact that there is certainly growing engagement in places like Sabah, even in the peninsula, through civil society groups. And I have to, I have to really tip my hat off at them. And also, you know, a, a lot of uh, attention given uh, by scholars 
uh, in the field currently who are now, I, I guess, becoming more vocal about speaking up about these sort of issues. And even friends who are working in the, in the legal industry, like Haijan, is that people are recognizing, despite their positions in society, that this is a problem. It needs everybody on board to come and say, no, put aside these old fears and threats. These children, these people need help. And our weakness is their pain. Their pain is our weakness, right? We are only as strong as our weakest link. And if our weakest link is that we're sort of neglecting a third of the people of Sabah, for example, or, you know, a fifth of the general population of the residents of the country, we're going to have a problem with resources, with development, with progress. But there also needs to be an attempt to engage with, with uh, irregular migrants, uh, engage with stateless undocumented people to say, you need to also sort of tell us how we can help you repair this lack of trust, because if you're too afraid to come forward, it's also not going to work. And we can't blame them. We really cannot. Because right. there has been, and Wong has talked about this, ways of abuse. You take advantage of the situation, right? Because um, on the ground, it's survival. Whether it's a police officer, it's an official from the National Registration Department, it's a school teacher, it's a mom going to the, the market, it's the woman operating in the market who is stateless. It's all a language of survival and how you survive, there's no rules to the game of survival. You just do it. You do anything that's possible. So this, in effect, creates, I don't know, these turbulences of trauma. Right. I think that's a really important um, perspective to add to this, that we talk about this, you know, it's it's very abstract, but there are real people who are experiencing trauma. Um, and maybe, Wong, you could tell me a little bit, what are your hopes for the future my hope for the future is uh, government solve this issue. Give them the ID. So the, if they got the ID, the children get, can get the education. All the status can get, uh, the adult can go to the university. Uh, the adult uh, can get a job, they can start a saving. They can tra travel to anywhere they like. Yeah, because now, they work, they had to open a bank account to save. So how are they going to survive? And, and what advice would you give to other people in your situation? So my advice is to, especially to the adult stateless, step out, voice out. Stop depending to other people to voice for you. I didn't, I didn't say it's wrong to depending on our, to other people to voice, voice out for you, but your voice is matter. Your voice is important. Don't stay in your comfort zone. Being a stateless is not a criminal, you know. So why are you going to scare? Why are you going to afraid? Just voice out, bring the awareness as much as you can so people are aware. I know it's hard. I know it's difficult, but at least you try your best. They are not alone. Many and thousands of the stateless. So if... All the stateless is step out to voice out. We can build a strong ally. We're gonna fight the system. We, I mean, we fight is not to broke to break the system. We fight to fix the system to a better future. Because at the end of the day, we are we're gonna survive. We're gonna marry. We're gonna have a kid. We're gonna pass the stateless to our children, right? So. Yeah, we're gonna step out to voice out to fight the broken system to fix it. Thank you for sharing that. 
and a few last closing questions. Um, Haijan, what do you recommend for stateless persons in similar situations to Wong? Uh, well, it's quite interesting to learn that uh, in Wong's case, uh, I just found out that uh, despite being a stateless uh, from Sabah, uh, he has uh, the liberty to move anywhere he likes in the country. That means he can travel from Sabah to Peninsula and back from Peninsula to Sabah. There's no problem. There's nothing stopping him or them. So it's the question of the stateless children, adults alike. They must come out. They have, if there's no access in Borneo, for example, they can always come to Peninsula. In, 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 interestingly, in Malaysia, you can file, uh, High Court have a concurrent jurisdiction. So even the case originates from Sabah, you can still file it in the peninsula. There's no problem. So I think it's a question, of course, you know, uh, of course, we can't just put it on the stateless uh, persons, children, uh, adult-like to do it. Uh, of course, this is with the assistance of uh, civil societies, NGOs, uh, governments, to, to assist them. But of course, you know, to me, at the end of the day, it's, it's on the individual itself, themselves, uh, to come out, to get the access. Because I'm sure it's not just me alone working in this uh, battle. There are others, there are other lawyers who, who feel the same, who have the empathy to help these people. And, and they have the energy. I, I, even I, I have the energy. Uh, you know, we, we, have, we have been fighting many battles uh, we know, uh, yet we, we persevere. So I'm not a rare person in Malaysia alone. So I'm sure there are others. So it's not just me. So And, and it's not just access to me, it's access to others as well. And I'm sure in, in, in Malaysia, for example, Bar Council, for example, they have, they have a special uh, committee for this that assists uh, stateless children uh, to get uh, proper documentations to get proper access to education, proper access to life uh, and all that. At the end of the day, we have federal constitution, the supreme law of the land to assist us. That's why I say at the end of the day, it's not enough to make noise. We have to get you know, access to legal uh, assistance so that we can fight it, fight the battle in court. It's not impossible for the court to grant Yes, I have, uh, you know, I have disappointments uh, with court every now and then, you know, uh, especially, uh, you know, the, the, the recent case of uh, CTIB, uh, you know, another stateless child who, who, uh, whose, uh, whose uh, application was turned down by the tax court of his country, whereby the court, uh, you know, to my disappointment, said that, you know, uh, citizenship application by operation of law is almost as automatic at birth. What does that mean? That means only the government has discretion to decide on the fate of these children, not courts, being the independence organ of the government, they can. So my faith is still with courts at the end of the day. Uh, so again, you know, comes back to what Wong has said, what Dr. Villa has said. Step up, get assistance. Without them stepping out, we don't know who's, uh, you know, which individuals that need assistance, uh, you know, for this. Haijan uh, said, like, others lawyer also maybe they have the concern to help, to help these other stateless. So what I got to say is, like, 
especially to the Sabah law firm, I hope they will they will file uh, one or two cases that might potential can granted citizenship in High Court. One can affected the other stateless. So I hope they will do do something. I don't because I I don't think when they when I ask them they said or oh, this is just our politi- political will or what is we have the federation of law. We have like Haijan said we have the legal guide, right? Federal constitution. Ah, federation constitution. So it's applied to every state on Malaysia, include Sabah and Sarawak. So why not? There are also file or one or two cases in Sabah. So in the future, no need in other stateless to travel to the peninsula like me. Thanks for adding that. And so lastly, is there anything listeners can do to help break this generational cycle of statelessness? You know, I think the the simplest thing that people can do to help with the situation is, you know, be part of the conversation, change the narrative. I think one very um, encouraging scenario is that with the sort of the the wake of of uh, this uh, youth movement that's actually taking place in the country, right? With younger Malaysians actually coming to the front and saying, I deserve rights, I'm not a child, I should be able to vote, I recognize, you know, issues regarding, uh, you know, jurisprudence and the law and um, the sort of political system at play. I want to participate as a functioning adult of this country. Um, what's very encouraging is that these are also the very same uh, group or population of the country that uh, I feel are most willing to listen. You know, and, and I think it has a lot to do with the kind of global change that's um, uh, taken place uh, as a result of the pandemic, right? That people have to be more compassionate because the pan- pandemic was just so incredibly devastating, it devastated lives. Not only did they kill people, but it devastated lives and livelihoods. If you thought that you were secure in, in you know, whatever sort of like um, in your little world of comfort and privilege, that can be turned upside down at any given time. Now, of course, there will be one percenters who probably don't feel very much affect, but generally majority of the world have been completely turned upside down because of it. And I think one of the things that sort of taken place um, both on a global and local arena is that there is a much more greater avenue for compassionate conversations about fringe communities, about people who are have always been suffering from a result of a classist elitist structure, but are now exacerbated by a worldwide pandemic. And so, you know, we do see young people coming forward saying, I experienced this and I can only I can only imagine how much worse it could have been if you were disabled, if you were a woman, if you were trans, if you were stateless, right? And this is very encouraging. So for those of you who haven't participated in that movement, be a part of it. Be a part of that change. Start that conversation. You don't have to know everything. You don't have to change everybody's minds. But if it's on the tip of your tongue, and if you're not afraid to talk about it, it gives avenue for other people to take action, to do what is right for them. We want at the, in the end of the day for you know courts, 
civil society um, spaces, um, general society, official government spaces to be hospitable spaces, right? To be encompassing, to be inclusive. You can only do that when people recognize that there are, and I'm, I hope I'm using this pun right, new narratives. Um, so yeah. Thank you so much for that, um, Dr. Vila. Um, thank you, Haijan. Thank you, Wong, for joining us today. For having us. Our thanks to Dr. Vilashini, Haijan, and Wong for joining us on this week's episode of Southeast Asia Dispatches. Wong and Haijan, we wish you the best in your court case. Please check out our website at newnarrative.com for more stories from Southeast Asia. This is Deborah wishing all our listeners a great week ahead. Jumpa lagi!